Welcome back to In The Moment. I'm Lori Walsh. Will recreational marijuana be available to the public in South Dakota on July 1st? To what extent is COVID-19 affecting the state legislature? Plus, thoughts on the state Democratic Party and the future of Stephanie Herseth-Sandlin. The Dakota Political Junkies are here to discuss today. We welcome Mike Card. He's Associate Professor, Professor of Political Science at the University of South Dakota. Hey, Mike, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. I'm pleased to be here. Also with us, former State Senator Tom Dempster. Hi, Tom. As am I, Lori. Delighted to be here as well. Thank you for the invitation. All right. Let's start with recreational marijuana, I think, um, and medical marijuana. Now, recreational marijuana is held up in court, but now there's efforts to put a pause on medical marijuana, too. And, of course, this is causing all kinds of consternation with people who feel that the voters' will needs to be implemented, and it's just simply not. So, Mike Card, as we watch this legislative session unfold, what what are you seeing as some of the highlights of this conversation? It's not a new one, for sure, as far as it comes to, you know, ballot questions. They often, <laughs> often cause um, a bit of drama. Well, there's a fundamental tension between the the voters and the legislature, and that has been recognized in almost every state. Uh, the legislature conducts hearings, uh, tries to get alternative opinions, and to try to craft a measure, a law, or a proposal to change the Constitution that that meets a majority so that it can be put in front of the, of the voters. Uh, an initiative petition, as it's uh, often structured, is individuals who wish to put something on the ballot and then try to raise the funds to get the citizenry to vote for that particular initiative. Uh, and often those are in competing perspectives, certainly with the entire issue of marijuana, I would say they're competing because the voters at this last election uh, significantly voted for recreational marijuana. 54% of the voters voted for, excuse me, voted for recreational marijuana. A, uh, nearly 70% voted for uh, some form of medicinal marijuana. And uh, the legislature has chosen not to go down that road. This particular legislative session, we, we see, again, some conflict. The, the Governor Nome is very clear that she is opposed to both marijuana measures. On the other hand, there are legislators who say, this could still be in front of us, and we need to do something now, both with the medicinal marijuana and the possibility that the South Dakota Supreme Court may hear this case and come July 1st, we may end up with a with uh, recreational marijuana being the law of the state. Uh, right. And if we don't act, we, <laughs> we're going to be in a world of hurt at that point. Yeah. And Those if it takes some more... Yeah, if it takes more time to implement a medicinal marijuana policy, you certainly don't want to get to the 11th hour trying to figure out how to implement recreational marijuana. And Tom Dempster, I want to ask you that that 70% number, 70%, more than 70% of voters um, said yes to medicinal marijuana. That was really clear. 
lawmakers have to be wondering about that, right? These are the voters that sent them to Pierce. Seventy percent is not is not squeaking by. <laughs> well, there's absolutely no doubt about that, and I don't think there would be many. I don't think there'd be many legislators that seriously would want to oppose that. Seventy percent is a fair, is a fairly compelling majority. Surely, there may be some administrative issues, some legal issues that uh, help to make that rational or help to make that difficult. But my guess in this session, you you would see some efforts to make medical marijuana work. Hmm. So I want to talk about like voter turnout because at there were so many, I, I can't remember how I did the math um, before the election, but I, you know, there was thousands of people who were newly registered voters. And when you looked at um, the, the numbers for medicinal marijuana, you know, I, I'm not a political scientist, Mike Card, but there were some definite questions I had about whether, how many people really came out and voted for the very first time. And I know some personally, and those people are disgruntled. Why did they come out <laughs> to vote for this and sign up to be registered voters for the very first time? And then it turns out, you know, from their perspective, to have been pointless. So talk a little bit about how this kind of conversation can turn into a larger conversation about um, democracy and showing up to vote and um could be a backlash or it could be just apathy to the nth degree. What What are your thoughts on that? Well, it, it's, again, a fundamental tension. Uh, 49 states and all 50 at one time had bicameral legislatures modeled after the national government. The national government was split into two particular chambers largely dealing with a small state versus large state issue. And the more rural states wanted a Senate to have power to balance the popular vote. And what we've got is a sense that the people in states like South Dakota, which adopted the uh, statutory initiative in 1898, the first state to do so, and the constitutional initiative where voters could vote upon constitutional amendments and citizens could propose constitutional amendments for the voters to vote upon uh, in 1972 or 74. So this is, in one sense, a democracy versus democratic republic form of question. The other issue is, is with that tension between the legislature and the citizenry, uh, there is a belief that the citizens don't always put forward the correctly worded uh, phrases. Sometimes there may be unconstitutional provisions. And so legislators want to try to fix those. On the other hand, most voter, well, a large number of voters believed that the legislature's handling of initiated measure 22 specifically dealing with uh, campaign contributions and the like the legislature the belief is that the legislature repealed it often using words like gutted uh, (laughs) and then did not put those provisions back some provisions were put back, but the belief mm-hmm. is is that none were. So 
attempts to redo initiated measure 26 on medicinal marijuana or even to limit it are fitting into that popularly held belief that the legislature is thwarting the will of the people. Hmm. Tom, you wanted to add to that? <laughs> I do. I do. I, mean, I can I just I can hear you I mean, waiting I, to <laughs> Go no, ahead. I do for sure because um I mean any of the legislators that I respect uh, and or that I respect um, will be very proud that South Dakota is the first state that that that, that passed the initiated and, and referred measures. I think that's a, I think that's a fundamental source of uh, pride in South Dakota. Thank you, Senator Pettigrew. Um, but I mean, when you when you first have a bill. Uh, or you first want to propose a bill, uh, you get the bill printed, you get it, you get it printed, and then you then you pass around a sign-up sheet. And if you're the sponsor of the bill in the Senate, you're going to sign sponsor in the Senate, and you're going to look for a sponsor that you that you respect in the House. Um, that's when I look to Senator Schoenbeck's and Representative Mortensen's bill that that has scrutiny of public ballot measures and say. Does this improve, or does it, or, or 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 does this um, hurt the process? Um, one of the things that you first, and, and you do this by instinct. One of the things when you first see a sponsor, when you hear about a bill, the first question that you have is, well, who's the sponsor? And that credibility of the sponsor lends a great deal as as to to the strengths of the argument. Um, the wonder, and, and so I look at I look at I look at a Senator Schoenbeck's uh, effort as being sincere. I would look at a Representative Mortensen's efforts as being sincere. Interestingly, I think I see that Senator Nessebo was quoted in the paper as as objecting to that process. Um, I think it will be a great debate, and I can't wait to hear it. But in my opinion, I mean, some of these are not are, are, are bad form. This particular one, I think, is great form. It's meant to improve the process. I, I want to expand this a little bit to um, this idea, you know, when we talk about the funds or campaign contributions or IM22 and uh, Mike Card, some information we're hearing about the governor talking about uh, privacy for donations to nonprofits and how that kind of intersects with campaign finance and and she says it it does not. Um, Tell us a little bit about what some of this dialogue is about in the state house this year about keeping donations private and how those donations could go on and and be used. Well, uh Contributions to nonprofit organizations are generally tax deductible, specifically if they're under the Internal Revenue Service Code. Uh, That is often dealing with what most of us know as social purpose organizations as 504c3s. There are a larger number of nonprofit organizations, often known as issue issue or advocacy organizations, which are also able to achieve tax-exempt contributions, those organizations can put advertisements in front of viewers, listeners, so long as they don't directly coordinate with election campaigns. They're officially not campaign contributions because campaign contributions aren't tax deductible 
to political parties or organizations that specifically lobby. And so the the concern that has been expressed to me is that by keeping donors secret, these organizations may put up issue ads or advocacy ads. They're often recognizable as call person X and tell him he's a big dummy for supporting Bill Bill Y right. or that he needs to change his actions or something. The the legislation as it currently reads says there's an exemption for campaign contributions. That's not the right word for affecting campaigns or campaign finance. But it's not clear that 504C4s and other issue and advocacy organizations are able to, that, that they're not making effectively trying to influence the campaign. The issue with keeping the donor secret is twofold. One of which is, is you may be contributing to an organization such as Catholic Charities, I believe is um, one of the former legislators who testified on, on the bill spoke that uh, you may receive threats and other concerns based on your opposition to abortion if you're contributing to Catholic Charities. And, uh, and there are others that were mentioned mostly out of state, specifically choosing California as an example, where donor lists were made public and that then generated uh, opposition to individuals who had donated to those charities. Yeah. On so the other on hand, one hand, it seem yeah. That, yeah, <laughs> we, we, we want to know who's trying to influence our vote. <laughs> and it seems to be a fundamental right to know who's influencing our vote. The Supreme Court in Citizens United versus the Federal Election uh, Commission noted that you can't limit campaign speech because it's the fundamental element of the First Amendment that requires what's called strict scrutiny, that there has to be a real compelling state interest in limiting speech. On the other hand, uh, if, if we limit speech by limiting who can contribute or making contributions known, is that not limiting speech versus the right of the citizenry to know who's actually trying to influence your vote? Um, Tom, so we have the sense of, yeah, we have the sense of, you know, cancel culture, you know, you donate to Catholic charities or Planned Parenthood for that matter, whomever, and somebody outs you and, you know, pretty soon, you know, you're just, your life becomes difficult. So privacy, we value that. On the other hand, we have these, you know, super PACs who are running anti, you know, you could run an anti-Billy Sutton ad that has nothing to do with Gnome's campaign and there would be almost an unlimited amount of money you could fuel into um, a, a, an organization that wants to criticize your political opponent and you, as long as they don't coordinate directly with you. There's a lot at stake I in that, two really competing, to competing ideas, yeah? <laughs> uh, yes, but no. Um, th uh, three things. Um, democracy, and we've certainly seen this in the past two or three weeks, 
democracy is all about standing up and saying, I am and I believe. And you should not be afraid. You should not tremble with your responsibility in a, in a democracy to stand up and say, this is who I am and this is what I believe. I do understand, though I ultimately reject um, the argument of uh, the freedom of speech argument that if I say something, someone is going to try and hurt me. I, under, I understand that. I hear that. I have heard people say that if I if I have to reveal that I'm making a contribution to this pack, then I won't make the contribution. And though I didn't say it out loud, I would I I would whisper to myself, well then don't make the contribution. The damage that dark money, in my opinion, does to our faith in our electoral system far, far outweighs the freedom of speech argument. I used to be a county commissioner. If you can, and sometimes we would have 100 to 200 very angry, angry people at our county commission meetings. If you can imagine, just, just for a second, if you can imagine somebody walking in that open and public forum with a mask on, wanting to come to the podium and say, well, I have things to say, but I don't want people to realize who I am, mm -hmm. you'd, you'd reject them. And the damage that, that dark money does to faith in our electoral system, I think, far outweighs the freedom of speech argument. It's I want to go back, before we let you go, I want to go back and just touch on what we were talking about before about, you know, voter apathy or frustration that, you know, the tension between uh, voters and legislators lawmakers. Um, and also talk a little bit, uh, Mike Card, about the Democratic Party and a little news about Stephanie Herseth Sandlin uh, and, you know, what, what her potential political future or pu future um, as a federal judge might be or a U.S. attorney. People are starting to throw around ideas of where she's headed next, if she is headed anywhere at all, other than Augustana <laughs> University. Um, and Mike, you also, you know, we're looking at this sort of nationwide look uh, at what's happening to, to parties in the state and how uh, people are trying to turn red states blue. And um, tell us a little bit about how, where are we at politically in South Dakota when uh, the speculation over where Herseth Sandlin is going is rising um, at the same time where, um, you know, the Democratic Party didn't do very well in this last uh, election. Well, I think it's an objective reality that the Democratic Party didn't do well in very many state elections, other than in states that have a preponderance of Democratic registered voters. So uh, th there is a movement afoot to take a long, hard look, much as the Republican Party did after losing the 2012 uh, presidential election. They called it a postmortem. I don't know that that's the appropriate term. But they are certainly looking at uh, what does the party need to do to become more relevant. What we've seen over the past many years is uh, independent of any political party, voter registration will soon be the largest group in, in South Dakota, certainly. And that means that the two political parties are not meeting the needs. Of, of the voters. And, yeah. uh, but yet we see that the 
the Republican Party candidates are tending to win elections in in states like South Dakota. So I think there are members of the Democratic Party who are looking at uh, something such as uh, Stacey Abrams and Lauren Groh-Wargo uh, published a piece in the New York Times, How to Turn Your Red State Blue, and it involves looking at taking a long, hard look. Why are we losing? What What is it that people want that we're not providing? Can we provide that given our beliefs? Uh, taking the long view, realizing it's a long, hard slug to figure out how to meet the needs of the people. And I think it's important for both political parties to do this. But it's more important for the Democratic Party. Uh, a single-party state has is just not good for democracy in my eyes as a political scientist you end up with fewer choices you end up with more autocratic uh leadership uh you end up with a consistent policy is a good thing you tend to get more equal treatment uh if if the leadership chooses and you get strong social cohesion uh which which one is the cause and which one is the effect is is a big question. Mm-hmm. With respect we to Stephanie, uh, yeah. we're out of time. I know Stephanie Hurst-Sandlin yeah. is saying she's done with politics. There will yeah. be a federal judgeship open. There will be a U.S. attorney's position open. She has also said she loves the challenge at Augustana. Yeah. We wait and uh, we wait and see. We'll leave it there for now. Um, Dakota Political Junkies join us on Wednesdays uh, on In the Moment today. Thanks to Mike Card and Tom Dempster. Senator Dempster, thanks so much for being here. Uh, thank you, Laurie. Professor Card, thank you as well. Thank you, Laurie. Thank you, Tom.